We welcome you to the media ministry of Denton Bible Church. Well, ministry can be challenging. If you've ever been involved in some form or fashion of ministry, you can relate. Uh, Chuck Swindoll says you've got to have rhino skin. Uh, the, the challenges of ministry are real. I've uh, been, uh, been in ministry now full-time for almost 10 years. I've uh, been at this church for almost 10 years in May, which is incredible. And uh, if I've learned anything, it's I can become discouraged in ministry. Can anybody relate to that at, at any level? Whether you're ministering in the church, whether you're ministering in the workplace, whether you're ministering in the school system, it doesn't matter. When you engage in some form or fashion of ministry, you're going to face discouragement. Uh, at some level, and I'll never forget, I was in a class, and uh, one of my professors was uh, going through uh, Philippians, and uh, we were in this text where it says, uh, do nothing, uh, do everything without grumbling or complaining that you may be children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation, and two translations, in which you hold forth or shine forth or hold fast to the word of God, so that on the day of Christ... When the judgment seat is prepared, Paul says, I'll be unashamed. And I said, come again. If it's hold fast, you're telling me that Paul's saying that when he's standing before the king and he's going to be unashamed, it's because those he taught held fast to truth. He said, that's what I'm saying. And in that moment, I realized this is ministry. Ministry is simply like the sower in Mark 4, casting seed, being faithful, trusting God, but giving the truth to the people who can receive it, and then ultimately following up in discipleship that it took hold. It's not transactional. It's relational discipleship. And I said, that's what I'm willing to commit my life to. And in that time, that was about six or seven years ago, I doubled down in ministry. I said, this is what I'm committing to. This is why I'm here. This is why I left the position I was in on the trajectory that I was on is to be in a place that holds high the word of God so that others can hold fast to it and take it into their spheres of influence. Well, what are the challenges to that? The challenges to that are, are pretty simple, and it's, it's one word, and I'll put it in the negative, disunity, and put it in the positive, unity. Unity. And so what Paul is doing in about 13 epistles is he's writing to deal with disunifying issues. And he's dealing with problems in the church that are constantly springing up. And he wants to deal with the heart because he realizes the heart is prone to forget. I know this in my own life. And so when you think about Paul writing to these churches on unity, tie that to Denton Bible Church. And it's a, it's a principle that I want us to understand today, that this church was built on a principle of equipping saints to do the work of the ministry, but our biggest challenge is disunity. I know this in my life, you know it in your life. It's true. We feel this. And so Paul's going to deal with it. Well, how did this church begin? If you've been around Didn't Bible Church for any amount of time, you know that this church began out of a tragedy, that an individual in Colorado Springs... Uh, lost a child at 11 months old, and he was 38 years old. And he said, for 30 years, I have been a Christian, but I've not been discipled. And he blamed himself, he went into uh, discouragement and depression, and he came out of that through discipleship. And at 48, after having been discipled, he left his career, he left his trajectory, he left his retirement package on the table so that his wife could provide for him and his four other kids at Dallas Seminary. And that was Mel Summerall. Now, at the same time, a 26-year-old who had been discipled in ministry was standing fast to truth, resolved, convicted, that the liberal Christian uh, message that he was having to sit under in his particular church in Denton was not going to be something he was going to accept as the yoke that he would continue to preach and the guy said, we'll find a new job. He was 26. Tommy Nelson met Mel Summerall at Denny's on 380, and that began what became Denton Bible Church almost 46 years ago. Two individuals discipled, making decisions that altered both of their lives forever. To build a church 46 years ago on the principle of discipleship that Paul understood so well, but also understood there are certain components of discipleship that we need to understand 
so that we can accomplish that thing that God has called us to accomplish. And we're gonna see what that is tonight. So if you would turn to Ephesians chapter four, we'll be looking at uh, Ephesians chapter four, verses one to 16. And what I simply wanna do is just go through this text. We'll, we'll pass over some portions, but we'll focus on others. And so what Paul is doing is he's writing to this church in Ephesus, uh, helping them understand a reality, again, that we all can relate to, which is we are prone to disagree. We are prone to be challenged. Um, you've heard it said that why don't we go back to the early church model? Uh, Acts 2 is our great model for how church was done. Well, in a few chapters, two individuals die uh, in the early church uh, because of lying to the Holy Spirit. And then right after that, in the next chapter, you have, and y'all have heard this before, but you've had Hellenistic Jews that are being discriminated against. So racism is, is rampant in the early church. And so the things that we still struggle with today, they struggle with then. It's a hard issue. It's an issue of the heart. And so what Paul understands is the heart is dealt with, obviously, through regeneration, the work of the Spirit, but also through discipleship. That God has to disciple those individuals who call themselves Christians so that they come to a place of understanding, and we're going to call it simply maturity. That we achieve this maturity that Paul wants churches and us as individuals to achieve. And that's just time. And that's just discipleship. And if you've been in ministry, you understand that. I mean, my family and I, we, we love to garden. And, and any good gardener knows it's not gonna grow quick. And it's gonna take time. And you're gonna deal with pests. And you're gonna deal with weeds. You're gonna deal with lack of sun. You're gonna deal with the cold. As I look out on all my plants, and Jennifer actually planted the majority of them, our winter garden is toast. Anybody else relate to that right now? The 19, 17 degree weather took it out. And so the chickens are having a free-for-all uh, you know, in the garden right now. And so it takes time. So that's one winter garden that we're not going to have too much harvest from. So we've got to wait another winter. And that's the same thing with discipleship. It just takes time. Things have to grow. They have to mature. They have to come to a place of understanding. And coming to a place of understanding takes a long process of investing and cultivating space for God to move in only ways that he can move. And so Paul understands that. That's why he doesn't lose hope in all of his letters. He always ends with promises, the hope of the return. The struggle now is to prepare you for a day to come. That the blessed life, the prosperous life is not today, although it might happen today and there's nothing wrong with that. The blessed life is really tomorrow with God in eternity. This life we live today as we live faithfully is gonna suffer persecution at some level, some challenge at some level. And so he's saying therefore we have to have an understanding that our hearts must be matured they must understand certain things about God, his word, his people. And this be able to then move forward into the world and spheres of influence with that in mind, that we can make a difference. And so in Ephesians 4, Paul sets up the word therefore. And if, you, if you're a student of the Bible, you understand that word is a word that's called a logical inferential. And what it's trying to tell you is, having said everything that I just said, I'm going to explain it. Having just told you what I just told you, now I'm gonna explain it in more detail. And so what has he just told them? Well, in the first of Ephesians, he's laying down a principle. And like verses, in Ephesians 1, verses 3, all the way through like verse 14 is, is literally, a, it's like I think it's one sentence, in the, it actually is one sentence in the Greek. From 13 all the way down to 14. And it's just this overflow of poetry, of the reality of what God has done in the life of the individual in him, in Christ, all these things that God did in the lives of these individuals. And he's gonna say in uh, chapter two, verse one, you are dead. You are dead in your trespasses so that whenever a word was spoken to you, you didn't have the ears to hear. You were turned off. The dial was turned down. You couldn't understand it. But he's saying you were made to come into this. You were bought with a price. And this bringing together of, in this context, the Jew and the Gentile, what it would do was it would create intrinsic disunity. Do we put bacon around the meat or not? Do we serve the shrimp or the catfish? I mean, it takes one question and this Jewish and Gentile body are disunified. Why do you think God had to show up to Peter in a dream and tell him all these things that come down the sheet, you're now free to eat? Go to Cornelius and dine with him. The tradition, the law, was a shadow, a copy, to tutor you, to show you your need, to ultimately bring you to a place of understanding that God, through Christ, 
is the only one who can meet that need. The food thing was to separate you in a society that would eat anything, would sacrifice to anything. Now the reality is God has accomplished all on your behalf so that you would receive the blessings that come through obedience, through Christ. This is what Christ did. And so what, what is occurring here is division inside this church. Jews and Gentiles coming together. And so if you look at the end of chapter two, he's saying that you two individuals form one body, and we're gonna call it a household in, in verses 20 through 22. We're gonna call it a temple. And this temple that is being built up is a temple built upon the apostles and the prophets having the, uh, the cornerstone as Christ himself. And so this is not a new teaching. These are ancient teachings that you are carrying on and fulfilling now in the church. And this church is gonna look something totally different than what you've seen before. Whereas before, think about Ruth. When Ruth came to faith, what did Ruth do? She converted to Judaism. It was an ethnocentric faith. You came to the Jewish faith from the outside in and you became a Jew. You followed Yahweh, you made the sacrifices, all these things. Now it's an eccentric faith. Uh, as Daniel Wallace put it, it's from the inside out, eccentric, from the center out. And so the gospel message begins now with the individual in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. It's an eccentric gospel. There's no converting to an ethnicity anymore. Now it's a representation that, sh that the Jews should have understood that their message, their calling in Genesis chapter 12 was to be a blessing to the nations. In Psalm 96, it says, ascribe to God his glory. Ascribe to God his glory. What, what that's saying is, is that as you walk in obedience, you experience blessing, and you don't say, look what we've done for ourselves. You say, look at what God has done for us on our behalf. You ascribe to him this glory, and the nations say, I want that God. That's what the Jews were to be, a kingdom of priests. That's Exodus chapter 19. They didn't. They, they failed. Christ came, accomplished it on our behalf. And then uh, Peter says in 1 Peter 2, now we as the church are the kingdom of priests. That's amazing. And so Paul is not writing anything new. He's saying, this is an old message that God laid down in ancient times that we're to trust him in obedience. The problem is we couldn't. So he gave us his life of trust and obedience so that we, so that we would then have the blessing that God promises to those who are obedient. And as a result of that, we become one new humanity. Ethnicity goes away. Race goes away. Color of skin goes away. Everything now becomes one. It's called one new humanity. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 13. That we're baptized into one faith. And now go into the world and infiltrate with that message, that good news gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, these people in Ephesus weren't doing it. So Paul's saying you have to understand something about who God is, about who you are in light of who God is, and what he's accomplished on your behalf. And now what you represent and also, and what we're gonna to see today, what is going to be magnified through you? What will actually occur inside local bodies as you are unified? And it's fascinating. So let's go to Ephesians, uh, yeah, Ephesians chapter four. So he says, therefore, having said all that I just said in one, two, and three, I'm gonna lay down a principle. I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you. Same word is used in Romans 12, one. I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. I urge you. There's a strong emphasis that Paul is trying to make. This is an urging. You, okay, parents in the room, are there times when you want to urge your children or implore them to do something that you know is gonna be to their benefit, but they don't do it? Now, we could go in and make those changes for them, but are they gonna learn anything? So what Paul is gonna say here, what he's gonna to say to all these is simply raise up this pillar, this, this idea of, of truth and of hope and of promise, but he's gonna persuade in a sense without necessarily commanding. It's, a, it's, a, it's an imploring that you have to own this decision. Think about the law in the, in the same context. The law was given for infants, for children. There are guardrails for a reason, but at some point the guardrails have to go away. There are training wheels for a reason, but at some point the training wheels have to go away. That at some point you have to have this intrinsic motivation to make the right decision because God is doing something in your life and you know now your life is to be lived unto his glory. And as that occurs, you begin to understand this imploring was something that Paul simply gave me as 
strongly encouraging, but I ended up making the decision. This is what has to happen in this church, this is what has to happen to us. I mean, we could tell you be unified all day long as a church staff, but is that gonna do anything? You have to see the vision for why unity is so important, and so do I. I have to embrace this vision of unity as God's best for me so that I can understand how to then live in this world that is gonna say, basically, uh, disunify over everything. And, And we'll talk about that later. He says, I implore you to do something. I implore you to walk in a manner worthy. So what he's saying is, I implore you to walk in a manner that is distinct. I I implore you to walk in a manner that is differentiated. Has anybody ever seen someone, and we say this of them, they march to the beat of their own drum. That this person understands something about themselves, about life, or we might say they don't understand anything about themselves or life, and they, you know, they don't get it. But either way, they are differentiated. And that's what Paul is saying. You have to differentiate. And that walk, okay, it's in the aorist tense, which is a punctiliar idea, which here's all that, here's all that means, punctuation. It's, it's like it's a dot, and it happened in the past. And it's, it's in its entirety. So that grammar is telling us this is who you are, and it happened in the past. Walk in who you are. Let's, we'll see this uh, as we continue. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So anybody ever played card games with your kids and, uh, or some, you know, maybe roommates, and they cheated? All right, we'll, just, we'll leave it at the kids here for now because we bear the last name. Roommates don't. And, and you say to them, no, we don't cheat. We don't cheat. You are a fill in the blank of your last name. Anybody ever heard of somebody doing that or anybody ever done that? Yeah, this is not who you are. And on top, if you're a Christian, that's especially not what you do as a Christian. But this is not what we do. And, and why would you say that? You, you're, you're simply saying, walk in the manner worthy of your name. We don't do that. That's not what we do here. And so what Paul is simply saying is, you are a Christian who's been given a new identity, walk in that identity. And he's going to explain to us how that walk looks. But I think we understand that he's laying this principle down saying, we have no reason to not walk in a certain way. In other words, I'll put it this way, Barna, anybody love Barna studies, data? Raise your hand if you love facts and figures. I've got to see the audience here. Who am I talking to? We've got maybe 25% of you. Now, those of you who are facts and figures, did, did I get that right? No, I'm just kidding. You can't see the whole, the whole congregation here. About 25%, so the other 75% bear with me, okay? Um, so Barna says uh, that 28% of evangelical Christians go into the workplace with a vision to integrate that workplace and their faith. 28%. Okay, is that walking in a manner worthy? You, you see what I mean? That's not living, so the other and the bigger portion are what's called compartmentalizers, meaning that's my church you know, way of living and this is my work way of living and means justify the ends. You've heard it said before. And we do this in education. We do this as we look for jobs. Fudging on the resume, fudging on, you know, I was gonna say taxes, but you know. We understand this, right? We say, but, but I have a reason for doing this. That's not walking in entirety. To be an integrator means I embrace any sphere that God has given me and I walk in the manner worthy of the calling. So he goes on and he says, well, what is that? What is that manner of walk? Look at verse two. It says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Humility. So flip over to Micah 6, or if you want to just hear me read it, you can do that. Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Micah 6, verse 8, perhaps some of you had this memorized. It says, he has told you, God has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Why would humility be the first thing that Paul put in this manner worthy of a walk? Why do you think he would put that? He leads with humility. 
that the walk that we are to have that encompasses our everyday life is a walk of humility. Why would that be the first thing he would put? I think we find the answer by, look, by looking back at what Christ has said. You remember in um, Matthew 5 when Christ said, he said, uh, he went up on the mountainside and his disciples came to him and he began teaching them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What does it mean to be poor in spirit? And we could take that you know, many different ways, but it doesn't mean that I'm poor in physical, financial wealth. It means I have reached the end of my understanding of my spiritual maturity, and I have made the decision that I come short. I am poor in spirit. I acknowledge that whatever it takes to be a spiritual, spiritually mature person, I do not possess within me intrinsically. That there has to be something else outside of me that does something to me that gives me the strength to be able to then walk with open hands and receive. Christ is gonna say that. He's gonna flip over so many of our notions of strength. If you wanna be exalted, what is he gonna say? You have to be first humbled. If you wanna be opposed by God, his hand heavy upon you, then you have to be proud. And we know what the differences are between those without having, getting, without having to get really practical. We understand what it means to walk in pride. I mean, just a simple thing is, do you confess your sin? I mean, if you're not confessing your sin, then you're struggling with pride at some level. Because the reality is we all walk in the flesh with renewed, regenerated hearts, but this war is waging and I'm gonna do things that hurt or offend constantly. If I'm breathing, I'm doing that. And so are you. And so I have to be walking in confession. If I'm not walking in confession, I'm probably struggling at some level with some form of pride. And as a result of that, God says his hand is against me. He's opposed to the prideful. Confession is the acknowledgement that I, an agreement that I have done something against someone or a group, and I acknowledge it and ask for their forgiveness, and then repentance is the turning away from and walking the other direction. And so that's the walk that first is what I had to do to come to faith. I mean, perhaps there's some here tonight that, that you hear unity and that makes no sense to you. Like unity on what? I mean, we know unity in the military. Uh, we know unity in the government. Well, maybe we don't. We, we know unity in the school system. We know unity in the family. But when it comes to unity in the church, what does that have to do with me? Maybe you're here tonight and you have no idea. You've never understood why unity is so important. Well, the first and foremost thing I would simply say to that person is this, is that you live in a disunified, disintegrated, disjointed life if you are separate from God. And, and here's why I say that argument. It's a, it's a logical argument. If it's true that God created all things, which I believe he did, then you're part of his creation. And if that's true, then he made you with a purpose. And if that purpose is understood to be, he's made you to be in a relationship with him, I, I'll call it fellowship, to be in fellowship with him, then what do you think is gonna bring you into fellowship with God? Well, I think an understanding of God has to be given first. Well, what, well, who is God? Well, God is a spirit who is not like us. Well, how is that true if he's, a, if he's a spirit and he's not like us? What makes him unique? Well, there are many characteristics that make God unique, one of which is holy. And, and you've seen or heard the illustration of the sun. The closer you get to the sun, from far away, you can see it, and its light is emanating to us, but the closer you get, it's destruction, vaporization, it's, you're gone. And that's the way we have to think about God's holiness, is the closer we get to God, the more we understand his presence. That's why he says, Moses, put me in the cleft as you pass by, that God's presence and his nearness without some mediator is going to eliminate and destroy humanity. It's, it's complete destruction. This is, this is what emanates, this is who God is. It's his character. He doesn't choose to be holy and then choose not to be holy. He is constantly, perpetually, inexorably holy. And as a result of that, if I am unholy and I come into his presence, there is gonna be no relationship. I will be removed, annihilated, taken away. And so God has to do something to bring me into fellowship with him if my life has not been holy. And I think if we're honest, and, and we got up this morning, we looked at ourselves in the mirror, we realized, well, my life isn't always holy. And, and you relate to that. I mean, it's, it's the relationships that get us. It's the computer screens that get us. Uh, let's be honest. It's the, uh, 
It's the drink. It's the drug. It's gossip. It's jealousy. It's slander. It's anything that is unholy that God says separates you from him. And if I come to him in that state, which I am born into that state, and I come to him in that state, he's gonna say, removed. And I have to accept that. Because what basis do I have to bring to a holy God if I have nothing? And that is a reality that every non-Christian, every person who's never seen Christ in his beauty has to deal with. And so you live in a disjointed state. You're searching for something, and the answer is Christ. I'm gonna say, when you see him for who he is, that he actually came to this earth to live the life that we could never live, to die the death that we would never die for someone that was totally our enemy, so that we would receive the gift that he has given us of eternal life and fellowship with God, knowing that my sin separates me from him, God made a way through Christ, and I simply receive that in faith, that's the greatest gift for all of mankind. Fellowship is restored. And so Paul's gonna say, that's the calling that you've been called to. You've been called out of a world that is self-promotion. You've been called out of a world that is selfishness. You've now been called into a world of bringing integration into disintegrated individuals. And as you live in this world where these people all around you are disintegrated, you have the one thing, the one thing that offers them hope in their lives. And so Christ is gonna say, and, and this is significant, in John 17, Y'all remember the high priestly prayer? It's, it's part of the upper room discourse. So imagine you had, y'all remember the movie Armageddon? Anybody remember this movie, Armageddon? All right, remember the scene where Bruce Willis is going down with Ben Affleck? It's the last scene. And if you haven't seen it, I'm not gonna ruin it for you. Uh, but it gets me every time. That one conversation, in his case, that one action is the last thing remembered. The last thing that that person will see. Christ has that last thing moment with his disciples from John 13 to John 17, the upper room discourse. What does he want them to know? What does he want them to understand? And here's what he wants them to understand in John 17. Father, I have fulfilled your mission that you've called me to fulfill. Glorify your name. He says that in John 17. He says, now as we are one, I pray that they may be one his disciples that are currently being trained by him, and then also the disciples that are to come. That their oneness, all the world will see. What does Jesus say in John 13, 34 and 35? A new commandment I give you. A new commandment I give you. It's to what? To love the brethren. Those who are gonna be the followers of me. He, does, he talks about the world in, in other places, but he's emphasizing in John 13 that you love one another, the church. John 17, tie this together, that they may be one, and what is the principle of the church's oneness, the disciples' oneness, as we are one. It's a trinity. That their oneness has a foundational basis in the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that as we live disjointed from that, we are an antithesis of communicating the Trinity to a lost world. It's, it's an incredible weight that we have to bear. And so Paul's gonna say, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. This is salvation with which you have been called. With what? With humility. Humility is an acknowledgement that I have a need. It simply says, I'm not smart enough, I'm not strong enough, I'm not winsome enough, I have a need. And only someone else outside of me can feel that, and that's Christ, as it pertains to salvation. The second aspect is gentleness. What does gentleness mean? So if our walk is to be in a manner worthy, and it begins with humility, what is gentleness? Gentleness in a simple phrase is strength under control. You've heard it used before. Anybody ever ridden a horse? All right, so what, what gentles that horse? Is it you on top of that horse? Because anybody ever been bareback on a horse? And, and a little bit more scary, isn't it? What gentles that horse if you're not bareback? It's a bit and a mouth with reins attached to it and two leather straps, right? 
That's, so, you know, people call it breaking a horse, which that's certainly true. You can break a horse, but what, really what you're doing is you're gentling the horse. You're gentling the horse. You're bringing something that is so powerful and so strong under control. So I love uh, to wrestle with my, with my three girls, and uh, as they've gotten older, the wrestling has, has waned a little bit, but th- we did wrestle a lot whenever they were younger. I could toss them on the bed, you know, and do all those type of things. And one of the things that they are beginning to realize now is how gentle I used to be with them. And, and easily could grab one of them and across the room. But I never did that. My wrestle was gentle. I was strength under control. Now, what about with your words? How are we not gentle with our words? Anybody struggle with anger? Yeah, it's so Proverbs 25, 28, a man who has no control over spirit, a man who has no control over his spirit is like a city that is broken down without walls. In that time period, the one thing that kept that city safe was a big, thick, wide, tall, multi-tiered wall. When you had that, you had your defense set up, and it would be impenetrable in many ways. When we lose our temper and we're not gentle, we take TNT dynamite and set it underneath the wall and blow it up. And we do it again and we blow it up. And what happens to the enemy? He's, it's free passageway. So the, the manner that's, that's the worthy manner that Paul's talking about begins with a sense of need and it begins with strength under control. We love to show our strength in some form or fashion. All of us do. All of us do. And Paul is saying that's good. But children, children, and we're gonna see this in a minute, are the ones that can't do that. You may be a grown man or a grown woman and still be a child because you can't bring strength under control. From childhood to manhood isn't becoming less effeminate. From childhood to womanhood isn't becoming less masculine, if that's even a thing. It's becoming less of a child. And what Paul is trying to teach these is don't be still needing to drink and eat on milk. Those are for infants. It's time for meat. And meat comes to those who are willing to accept that they don't have it all figured out. Now, how can, now imagine that in our church, if we live that way, in humility and in gentleness. Just imagine what would change overnight if we all walked around in gentleness and humility. I mean, it'd be incredible. And, and the third thing is patience. Does anybody here struggle with patience? Can anybody relate to a red light and it keeping you from accomplishing the task at hand? Anybody relate to that? We got the high drivers in the room. This is the high Ds, if you know the disc personality. You cannot stand a red light. Anybody not liking, like to go get their oil changed because you're just wasting time? Anybody relate? Yeah, yeah, so we're all on the same page. We, we, we do not enjoy waiting. Uh, I just, I mean, but, but again, if you're gonna garden, if you're gonna deal with people, if you're gonna, everything is waiting. I mean, it, like, so take Amazon. Okay, how has Amazon changed us? Uh, does anybody remember dial-up? Okay, um, yeah, I mean, dial-up to know I need, what's the highest speed I can get now on my internet? And when I don't get it, I mean, how mad am I? I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, I mean, let's be honest. I need, to, okay, Chick-fil-A. All right, now, now we're kind of meddling here. Chick-fil-A, so um, was it your pleasure to make me wait 10 minutes or was it not your pleasure? That's the question you wanna ask whenever you're sitting there waiting for 10 minutes to get your food. Am I right about that? Y'all know what I'm talking about. Then you're sitting there and you're going, you've got to be kidding me. It took you 10 minutes to make a meal? Let's be honest. You're, I mean, this is our, we do, so why is it that we constantly need things to be, okay, so this is a total rabbit trail. Wendell Berry, anybody know Wendell, Wendell Berry? Anybody ever heard of the name Wendell Berry? Okay, Wendell Berry, anybody else? Raise your hand if you know Wendell Berry. If you've not met Wendell Berry, Okay, he's gonna be out signing books. No, I'm just kidding. Wendell Berry is an incredible author. He uh, is a Kentucky farmer uh, uh, that is an activist in some ways. Uh, he's an environmentalist in, in some ways, uh, but he writes fiction. He writes fiction, and pretty incredible uh, fiction writer. He writes in the 1940s setting, and he writes about this uh, Hargrave in Port, Port William, I think, uh, is, is the setting that he creates. And um, I was reading one of his books over the, over the break, and uh, the book was called Andy Catlett. Anybody read Andy Catlett? 
See if anybody in here? All right. So Andy Catlett um, is one of the characters that he develops, and he goes to his two sets of grandparents' houses. All right. He goes to one that's in rural Kentucky, and, and his grandfather picks him up in, uh, in mule and buggy. Anybody ridden in a mule and buggy before? I'm starting to get a few hands, okay? Mule and buggy, okay? And, and they're pulling them back, and, and they were tobacco farmers, and they all came together. There's some sharecroppers, and they all just spent time together as his little grandson, who's nine years old, Andy Cat was there. And he just was watching these old men work and watching each different personality, and Wendell Berry does a fantastic job describing the emotions of the moment. And he describes these different situations that he's in and the old ways and how Industrial Revolution was really coming on and changing the way that ag was done. And, um, and then his time with that grandparent ended and his other grandparent came and picked him up with a combustion engine. And, uh, and he got in the car and he realized, I can't see the landscape like I used to see the landscape. Things are moving real fast and my eyes can't focus. Whereas on the, on the buggy and the mules, I could focus on something. I could identify something and, and hang with it. Now this is a theory. But when the automobile was made, we were prime for Amazon Prime. I'm just kidding. I don't know. But think about it. Our eyes need to be readjusted. Even sitting in a, in a message, right? It's hard for us to sit more than 20 minutes. They say is the average uh, attention span is 20 minutes. Can you believe that? People would wait for, I mean, literally hours to hear someone speak and then sit there for hours to listen to them speak. Engaged in the conversation. When Lincoln debated uh, Douglas, Whenever Lincoln was coming to presidency, hours, hours and hours they would listen to these debates and they were actively engaged. It's fascinating how we've changed. And so we're not patient. So what do we need to understand if we're to be a certain way as it pertains to unity? That I have to be humble, I have to be gentle, and I have to be patient. But that doesn't come natural, so I need a vision to see why I should do this. And if it's true that I should do this as it pertains to the outcome that's gonna teach me, then I have the responsibility, and you now in this message, if you've read Ephesians in this message, to cultivate space in your life for humility, for gentleness, and for patience to grow, to cultivate, to become fruitful. If I am to be patient, I have to cultivate space in the little increments of being patient so that in those bigger increments, I can show myself faithful to being patient. If you and I believe that I'm gonna be gentle, I'm gonna be humble, and I'm gonna be patient by default, then we're gonna live in this little cycle of confusion. It won't happen. We have to cultivate it. So how do we do it? Well, number one, look at, look at verse three. We have to be diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So Paul says, therefore, having said what I just said, here's who I am, here's why I'm writing you, walk in a manner, here's how you walk, with humility, with gentleness, and with patience. Why should I do that? Because there is a preservation that must occur. And the preservation is the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That when I walk in humility, when I walk in uh, gentleness, when I walk in patience, I am walking with the aim of, of preserving a unified spirit. Now, this manifests itself in a local congregation that we have elders, we have deacons, we have staff. And so inside this church, I have to walk in a manner worthy of my calling, which is salvation, with humility, with gentleness, and with patience to preserve inside of this church the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Now, if you've been in ministry like I have, or even as a layman, you're gonna find that's gonna be challenging. Can anybody relate? I relate to it. In fact, what I mentioned earlier about the Philippians 2 passage is what got me through it. That I'm here because I believe there's something important about a unified spirit. Number one, Christ has given me that charge because it's a representation of evangelism to a seeking world that a unified church is the first message of evangelism to a world watching. Why wouldn't Satan wanna divide us over COVID, over vaccines, over politics? What, could, what else can I say that's gonna make your blood boil? Uh, I can keep going, right? Why wouldn't he wanna do that? It's, it's, the, it's, it's, it's the snake's head. If he can make us disunified as a church, 
I mean, universal church, which is, which is spiritual, invisible, and then local church, which is visible here, it's local. If he can disunify us, then now our message of evangelism is gone. And I can go share with my neighbor, but my neighbor says, yeah, but I've been to the church. I had a conversation this week, so I do this thing with my friends from, from college. We, we've been getting together once a month on Zoom, and we're going through different books. And our book this, this month was uh, What is a Healthy Church by Mark Dever. And, uh, and so we had them go through that book, and they all just kind of gave feedback on it. And um, one guy said, man, I love the guy. Well, he actually said a few other things about the guy. Uh, but he said I, I, his message doesn't resonate with the CrossFit people that I work out with. His message doesn't resonate uh, with the coworkers that I have, hypothetically. And, and the obvious question is, well, well, why? He says, well, because they've been burned in the church. And so they're not ever gonna come back and hear a message like this because the church has done something to them. How sad. If Satan can take the church and separate it, fracture it, then now it's a world that doesn't care what we say. He can go into that world, and now he has to navigate through the CrossFit you know, mechanism to bring them Christ. Well, that's, a, that's, a, that's, that's a shame. It shouldn't be that way. And that's why Paul is calling us to something greater. And I believe we have that privilege to walk in that. It begins with me. So there is one body, Paul is going to say, and one spirit. And I'm going to skip all the way down. Because verses 4 all the way through verses 11 is Paul giving to this church and for us today the explanation of how um, the gifts were given and how we can ever expect inside a local church there to be unity. There's gotta be order. So God conquered, he was, he was victorious. He is the authority over what's high and what's low. That's what he's gonna say. He ascended, he, dis- he descended. Over all principality, principalities of spiritual darkness, Christ has overcome and he has given gifts to individuals. That's what he's gonna say. He has given gifts to individuals to administrate inside the local church to maintain and preserve this unity. It's not anarchy inside a church. There's order. Uh, Genesis 8, 22 and 23, I think, says that seed time and harvest, that God is a God of order. There, is, there are seasons, and so there's order. Just like there is order in creation, there's order inside a church. And so Paul's gonna say that Christ is the authority of order. He has then imparted to individuals the blessing of being able to bring order into a church. And then what is their responsibility? Look at verse 12. Their responsibility, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, is to equip the saints for the work of service. Anybody read the book, um, Boys in the Boat? We got one, two. All right. You want me to ruin the book for you? Anybody not want me to ruin that book for, the, for you? 1936, Berlin Olympics. I'm going to go ahead and ruin it. Sorry. You should have read it. It's your fault. There's going to be a movie over it. They win the gold. I, won't, I ruined it. They win the gold. It's a rowing team, crew. They're up in Washington University. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant illustration for the church. A coxswain is the individual that sits facing the crew as they're rowing. He knows each individual inside that boat, their strengths, their weaknesses, the strategy to draw out of them the best that's inside of them. That's the coxswain. He's not rowing. He's just coaching. Strategy. He knows the team that he's going against. That, those boats that are in there, he knows exactly their strengths, their weaknesses. He, he has to be the student of everything. He carries the boat. Whenever they get done, he cleans it. He's the servant. And he sits there, and he, as they're rowing, he's giving them calls. He knows the engine in the back is his muscle. He gives them certain calls. And as he does that, he's making these individuals become one unit. And as you read that book, you find out how they become one unit. And it's incredible, the rigor and the training and the sacrifice and the physicality of being on a rowing crew that this coxswain has to understand about each individual that he then brings out. That's my job as a pastor, is to be that individual that coaches, that sees, that equips, that raises up, and by God's grace, gives you the the lane to run in to be all that God has created you to be in ministry. That is the servant's role of the servants. 
That's, that's the role of the pastor. He holds high the word of God. He communicates it expositionally, verse by verse. And then he looks out into the congregation, the membership of the body, and finds their strengths, understands their weaknesses, and empowers, equips, and trains them to be all that God has made them to be. Why would he do that? Here's why. Verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith. So the telos, which is purpose, that's all it means, teleological. That means there's a purpose. The telos of unity is maturity. It's a unity of faith, a knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. That the reason why the telos of my walking in humility, walking in gentleness, bearing one another in patience, is because God has given me the privilege to equip the saints to do that so that they would come to, and me along with them, would come to a place of maturation and the fullness of God. So that what is lacking in the church is a picture of Christ when we are disunified. So as I gossip, as I slander, I am detrimentally fracturing the potential inside a church to look and to bear witness to the fullness of Christ. As I bear under in patience, as I walk in gentleness, as I embrace in humility, I am at least giving the propensity and the opportunity and the potential for the congregation to become the fullness that they were made to become, matured, knowledgeable. And that's a vision that we all, I have to embrace. I have to embrace that vision. Because if I'm here promoting myself, then I in ministry am not cultivating the space for a congregation to become all that God has created them to become. And I hope that just resonates with you. Because my pursuit and being diligent of maintaining unity is to ultimately reach the telos of the fullness of Christ being on display. And he's going to say that, that the challenge in verse 14 is that as a result, what happens? We grow up. As a result, we are no longer children tossed here and there by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, but instead we are speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. That's a long way of saying that as I walk in the pursuit of unity by being humble, by being gentle, and by being patient, what is occurring is, is that I am leaving childhood, I'm advancing into maturation and adulthood, and the fullness of Christ is being on display, and the body of Christ is being edified. And then we go, <gasps> and we die. And he says, well done, well done, good and faithful servant. Come into the presence of your Lord. I sent my son Christ to die for the very bride that you pursued unity toward. The love I have for my bride, I can only imagine him saying, you understood a fraction of, but that fraction was significant. And your pursuit of unity, well done. I can only imagine that day. And so my aim is to pursue unity. I believe the best years of Denton Bible's uh, history is yet to come, personally I do. I believe we are on the cusp. It is a cusp of clear, practical, doctrinal exposition of God's word into a world that is constantly craving, constantly craving truth. Hint, um, anybody read Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self? Of all the books I said tonight, go buy that book, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. First Chronicles 12 says that the sons of Issachar understood the times 
And they didn't just understand the times, they knew what Israel should do. That's 1 Chronicles 12, 36. You have and I have to understand the times. Carl Truman is a scholar. You will get hung up on the scholarship. Just trust me, you will. But push through it. Push through it. Get your dictionary next to you. You'll need it like I did. You know, you'll need to look up words and all that stuff. I actually didn't use it for that one, but I needed to because I just went, oh, I, don't, I forgot that word. But anyway, you'll need it. He's a scholar who unpacks the melu that we are in right now in our world today. He unpacks it. And we, we need to stop asking questions like, why are we struggling with 20-minute um, attention spans? Why are we struggling with sexual promiscuity? I mean, like all those questions are answered when, when we just open our eyes to what's been occurring for the last 100 years. He says, Rousseau is the one that came and basically said, it's the noble savage idea. Just let man alone. He'll be fine. The problem with man is that we've intruded too much into his life. Leave the kids alone, they'll be fine. And to that we say, okay, what, what did Piggy end up, how did that end up with Piggy? Uh, and what was the name of that book? Lord of the Flies? Yeah, that's how that ends up. That's a nasty book, um, and it's, but it you know, ends with a, with a reality. He, he's gonna say that uh, Rousseau uh, obviously welcomed in the poets who basically said, just go ahead and set the wind chime up and let the, let the wind breeze blow through it, and that's, that's the rhythm of life. He says, the poets became the unacknowledged legislators. So just set up on a pendulum, a paintbrush, and let the thing hang in suspension down and push it, and let the gravitational pull paint the painting. And that's surrealism. We don't need God. God is gone. We have the gravitational pull of the earth. Let's bring surrealism into the art community, and it's called a death work, because its aim is to destroy anything that promotes truth as an absolute from one entity, which we would call the Godhead, Trinity, and says that needs to be removed. Freud comes in, we know what Freud did, we're sexualized. Marx comes in, we know what Marx did, we're politicized. Darwin comes in, what does Darwin do? He says we are evolved, survival of the fittest. And so as we look through history, we see psychologically, philosophically, sociologically, biologically, there has been an aim to detonate everything that we would say as Christians we hold dear. And as a Christian, I think now we have the most privileged opportunity to be in our world to hold this high and say, I've got the answer. So what's the application? When do we divide? All right, so simple application. Here's whenever you do and I, when we must divide. If there's heresy in the church, you gotta divide. You have to go. Heresy cannot be withstood. Uh, if there's a matter of conscience that you're constantly being asked things to do, to do things that are against your conscience, you can't submit to that. You go to that person that's asking you and you remove yourself. You have to divide in that, in that case. Practical. If you can't submit to authority and it's a pattern of you can't submit to authority, it's time to leave. Proverbs 26, 20 says, take away wood from the fire and the fire goes out. Take away the whisper and quarreling ceases. If you know that you can't abide in a culture, a church, without being a whisperer, you gotta go. It's time to go and go make sure you tell the people why you're leaving, the, the leadership of that church, and just say, I can't bear under this anymore. It's not doctrinal, it's not this, it's just I can't. Um, there is another division that must occur and Paul says it's facile faith, nominal faith. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 18 and 19, he says that there's gonna be division in the church, those who are real and those who are pretenders. And we need to divide those. Our church does that. We have certain things that we give people opportunities to do that not everybody wants to do. Some people literally, y'all, show up, marry, bury, and then be there for me whenever I need you. That's it. And they don't want to go into any form of discipleship. And if you ask them to, they're gonna, they're gonna be offended. I mean, this is, I mean, I hate to say it, but it's just true. And so those people, have, we gotta separate those people. We're on a mission. It's a very simple mission, but it's not easy. And the mission is to be faithful to what is true in a world that says, be unfaithful. Now, what is unnecessary division? I'm gonna just give some thoughts here. Individualism is unnecessary division, okay? Here's what I mean by individualism. I mean, you're just basically a consumer. I mean, it, it, you know, crudely, it's, it's a leech. I mean, you know what I mean? I mean, like a tick, a parasite. 
And those people are, are some of the, and I, and I say it crudely like that because those are some of the most subversive people inside a church. They just take, 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 and all they do is fill themselves up and they go about their days. And believe me, I am tempted to that just as much as you are. I promise you. It's not like all of a sudden you become a pastor and you arrive at not being a taker. No, I have to work against that. I have to be reminded, be gentle, be humble, be patient. I want what I want and I want it now. I mean, I'm an Amazon Prime member, okay? Let's be honest. So I struggle with this too. But, but that's, that is disunity. Individualism is, dis, is disunifying. If you only come here and you don't, you're not willing to invest in some form or fashion, and by the way, you invest in seasons. So I'm not saying there's only one way to invest and you need to go sign up for, you know, you know, to go become a missionary or something like that. I'm not saying that at all or to go and you know, work in the Sunday school. I'm not saying that at all. But you know whenever you have the time and when you don't. And if you're here just taking, then you are being disunifying. It's true. I mean, it really is. The second is active. If you just don't like the way that Kendall does worship, that is division. That is, that is an active preferential division. If you just don't like the way that worship is done or the way that Tommy wears a tie or the fact that I'm wearing an untucked shirt, that is division. That is preferential division. And it begins in a little bitty tiny fracture inside your heart and it begins to make its way into all of your life. And what, what ends up happening is, is that, that, sad to say, you just get set aside in ministry. And, and you, you talk about the good old days. Back when I was in college, or back when I was in fill in the Blake high school. And, and if that's the back in the good old days, then in some form or fashion, you're not embracing this call to unity. Because, and let's be honest, you've probably been burned in ministry. Anybody, anybody, raise your, no, you don't have to raise your hand. But you've probably been burned in ministry at some level. If you've been in ministry, you've been burned. So you say, hey, look, I've been there. And I've heard the pastor say that. And, uh, and, and to that person, I would say, keep going. I would say, press in. If God is sufficient to raise his son from a dead grave, he is sufficient to give you the strength to endure the hardship of forgiving someone of having the wound unbandaged, festering, and him giving the salve of forgiveness and reminder that if I have forgiven you once in the greatest forgiveness you could ever have to Peter, Peter, how could you not forgive him 70 times seven times? That we have to embrace that hurt is part of humanity. The spirit of God has been given to us to comfort us in our hurt and to strengthen us to press in. So I guess the big challenge that I have is in conclusion, honestly, I don't even remember what time we close here, but I feel like it's, it's been going a little bit long, so y'all just bear with me here. My, my conclusion is simply this. Our church loves y'all. I, I can only say that. Like, I, I'm here because Mike Spencer said I have a need. We got hit with COVID. Mike doesn't have it, but apparently others have. And, and he texted me, he said, can you, can you, I need you, I'm in. I need you to fill in. I said, man, I'm, I'm in, like, I'm there. Because I have a love for y'all for this body, and, and I'm, I'm not alone. There's 50 full-time staff members. They all share the same love. So wherever you are in your place of pursuing unity, here's what I say. Press into it. Be unified. What if we were? What if 10 years from now we talk about what God did in our lives because we were unified in the church, even when we don't, even when we don't understand, even when it doesn't make sense, God sees. Father, I thank you for this evening, for this night. I pray, God, that you would just comfort each of us as we, as we pursue unity at all cost. If we've been hurt, if we've been maligned, if we have been spoken harshly against or even behind our back, I know it happens. Let us be reminded of what the old individual Thomas Akempis said. It is good often when a man is misunderstood and misrepresented even though he means well and has good intent because it keeps him humble. God, you see, you hear, and you understand. Joseph had to sit in a prison accused of wrongful action. You went to a cross accused of wrongful action. You were betrayed by your closest followers. You were denied, you were abandoned. And you simply said, forgive them. 
for they know not what they do. And then you said this, to tell us die. It is finished. Thank you that you said to tell us die. Thank you that you made a way for unity to actually occur. If you didn't say those words, we'd have no hope of unity. But you sent, you sent the Spirit of God to regenerate a heart that would regenerate, that you would regenerate other hearts, that you would unify in one spirit a body called a new humanity, a new creation, so that we could go out into the world and message the love of God. In Jesus' name, amen.